a treat to be here. Um, as was mentioned, I've just moved. I don't know where I am anymore. <laughs> um, and what I'm going to be talking about today is not really news, it's not at all news related except by the subject matter. I'm going to be talking about the research or some of the research we've done over the years uh, to address the issue of uh, controlled food intake and overeating and obesity. And I hope uh, that some of you are puzzled by this uh, title because uh, it sort of turns things on its head, I think, turns things around from what the normal conception of the relationship between obesity and overeating is. Um, the conventional view, the traditional view is, is that, and I'm going to focus on intake because that's what I think about more than expenditures, but um, clearly it's a similar story. Um, the conventional view is, is that uh, people become obese because they eat too much. And they eat too much for a variety of reasons, for um, reasons of behavior usually is the, is the culprit. Uh, the usual line is, is people eat too much because food is uh, plentiful uh, and there's a variety and it's palatable. And I'll just say here, we can talk about it later, there's, to my knowledge, no direct evidence that people overeat and are nutritionally significant animal because food tastes good. And there are animal studies that suggest, uh, in fact, the opposite. Um, so that's the conventional view in this. So you have more food, you have more energy, more fuels coming in, they have to go someplace. Um, Myron Cohn said everybody's got to be someplace, and if you know the comedian. And, uh, it goes into fat storage. The other view, an alternative view, which is one that I came to when I was a postdoc, um, is uh, the opposite uh, situation, which is actually what drives the overeating is the obesity, if you will, is the increase in fat storage. And this could be due to the kind of diet you eat. There's probably sure genetic factors involved, environmental factors that for whatever reason, cause the body to store more of what it consumes as fat. And that, as a result, lowers the circulating availability of fuel, and the, the animal, the person, responds appropriately. Fuel's missing, and you eat more to compensate for that. You eat to, essentially, you're compensating for the, quote, loss of fuel into adipose tissue. One way to look at that in a sort of general way is, is that in very severe edema, people can be can report that they're thirsty. Well, why should they be thirsty? They have all this fluid in their body, and it's because it's in the wrong place. It's an interstitial fluid as opposed to in places like in the, in the, uh, in the circulation where volume receptors can detect a loss of fluid. The same is true in, uh, with obesity. You look at it as an energy edema, if you will. The energy is in the wrong place where the body can't detect it. It's there. Now, I came to this, as I said, when I was a postdoc a long time ago. Um, Gary Taubes, who's one of the co-founders of uh, Newsly, um, has done a lot of work on the history of these ideas, and of course then tells me that this is an idea that goes back the early, probably the early part of the last century, and particularly um, an idea that was essentially um, uh, circulating in pre-war Germany. Um, and he's written a history of this. This is a British Medical Journal article by him uh, discussing the history of this idea. 
and um, so you know nothing's new under the sun. Um, and I think what, what our work has done to expand this to expand this this notion is uh, to ask the question: Well, how do these changes actually translate into changes in food intake? Now, I'm going to talk briefly here, just in summary. There's a lot of evidence that, that this that this scenario I described that an increase in fat storage is causing the increase in food intake. There's different kinds of evidence. Um, for example, you can show that during development, genetic obesity, say in Zucker rats, and I think in OB and mice as well, that you see an increase in fat storage in time before you see an increase in food intake. You can also see in, under conditions where you create a, an acute onset obesity, which is where you put electrodes in the ventromedial hypothalamus or you anesthetize the ventrally to destroy it, or you anesthetize the vent, that part of the brain, and within minutes, the animals start eating. Well, if you don't let them eat, you take a look at their metabolism. Instead, what you find is, is increased fat synthesis, increased uh, ch other changes in the hormonal state and so on, which would um, promote the storage of synthesis of fat. And you, if you prevent, over a longer period of time, the overeating by tube feeding, hand feeding the animals, uh, control, pair feeding them, you still see an excessive fat deposition. So the fat, excessive fat deposition is really primary and can therefore be what's causing the increase in food intake. So the way I look at it involves some other assumptions. Whoops, I just did a bad thing. Which, is go, which I'm going to go into more detail about. And the assumption is, is that this has to do with what happens when fuels are partitioned into various uh, compartments or into different uh, pathways of metabolism, primarily into storage versus um, being expended as heat or muscular activity versus being oxidized in a, uh, an organ that can sense something about that fuel oxidation. And that's what this model um, that I'll be talking about today is based on and the ideas of how you translate an increase in fat deposition to an increase in food intake. So in obesity, essentially what I'm saying happens is um, that there's an increase in the storage of fuel into fat, there's a decrease in the mobilization. That compromises fuels being oxidized through liver where they can be detected. It compromises the production of ATP, which in turn provides a signal to the brain to eat, and you get an increase in food intake. That's the scenario that I'm talking about. Uh, one of the people who wrote about how obesity is primary, uh, the fat deposition, excessive fat deposition is primary in obesity as opposed to secondary to an increased food intake was Hugo Roney, who was an endocrinologist at Northwestern and wrote a paper which I would recommend to you called Obesity and Leanness. You can actually get it if you Google it. Um, it's available. Uh, 1940, and he talks about this, and he sort of puts the onus on those who say it's that the obesity is due to overeating by asking two questions. What's wrong with the mechanism that normally controls appetite? And the way that I'm looking at it here that I'm talking about now is to, the answer to that is nothing. It's responding appropriately to a deficit in energy status caused by the, quote, loss of energy to adipose tissue. And he also asks what part of the mechanism is primarily disturbed. And I'm saying no point. The disturbance is in the fuel partitioning 
uh, and the processing of uh, metabolic fuels. It's not in the appetite mechanism. So, in essence, what I'm saying is overeating is driven by a metabolic, not a behavioral problem, and essentially what drives the obesity is also what's driving the overeating. So what I'm going to focus on is, uh, if I get this right, this part here, and um, taking a cue from this following cartoon. I don't know if you can see that, but on the blackboard it says, then a miracle occurs. And the guy, uh, looking like a scientist, says, I think you should be more explicit here in step two. And that's what I'm going to try to do uh, for the rest of this talk, is to be more explicit. One of the main um, assumptions I'm going to be making in this talk, and I'm not going to go into this in any detail, is that the liver is an organ that senses changes in metabolism. I'll talk about more specifically what I mean by that. And that it's, it, it provides a signal to the central nervous system to control food intake. And there's lots of evidence for this. Uh, it's evidence that it's involved in satiety in the sense that if you feed the liver, say with glucose and portal vein at a concentration that if given systemically has no effect, you'll suppress food intake. You can, uh, and I'll show some data on this, you can, get, you can manipulate liver metabolism and show that it can trigger food intake. You can also show that feeding the liver, if you will, provides in a Pavlovian terms an unconditioned stimulus which when paired with a food flavor will produce a preference for that flavor. So glucose infusion in the liver and the portal vein um, will suppress food intake, but if you pair that infusion with a food flavor, the animals, the rats, will prefer that food flavor over an infusion that's just paired with saline, say. And finally, um, it looks as if at least some of the information that, that is going from liver to brain is going by way of vagal affluence. There may be other um, uh, routes that the, that the brain gets this information. There could be a humoral signal. Nobody's ever had, there's no evidence one way or the other for that, but it's a logical possibility. So we can talk later if you want more detail about this, but um, for the time being, I'm asking you to accept that there is a signal coming from the liver that controls food intake. So for the rest of the talk, I'm going to talk first about the role of fat oxidation and what that does to food intake and how it plays a part in uh, overeating and obesity. Um, I won't go through the details here, but you can read them for yourself. Uh, then I'm going to talk about this energy, what I'm calling an energostatic control of food intake, which was actually a term, I think, coined by Ted Van Italy and Harry Kisloff. No, it was coined by David Booth. David Booth and Totes, right. Um, in, uh, in some reviews and some modeling work that, that uh, Booth did. And then finally sort of tie this back, this, this energostatic control back to um, the uh, overeating and obesity. In particular, what I'll be talking about is diet-induced obesity. So here's where I'm going to focus on first in terms of oxidation. What I'm going to talk about here is about fatty acid oxidation. So the bottom line here is, is not only does it look as if there's this increase in fat storage that takes place, that loss of energy into storage, but I think there also may be a reduced capacity for hepatic fatty acid oxidation, which is driving um, food intake as well in obesity. Uh, 
the most direct evidence, I think, that fatty acid <coughs> oxidation in liver is involved in controlled food intake is, is that we can um, inhibit the oxidation of fatty acid by inhibiting carnitine palmitoyl transferase 1, which is a carrier that takes the long chain fatty acids from cytoplasm into mitochondria where they're primarily oxidized. And we use a drug called methylpalmoxorate to do that. And when you give that to rats, uh, this is a dose response uh, study, um, what you find is, is that in rats that are dependent on fat as a source of energy, in other words, in rats that are fed a low carbohydrate, high fat diet, a Ratkins diet, if you will, um, <laughs> that they um, will show a dose-related increase in food intake after you give them this drug. Now, um, we know from work that was done by others, in particular perhaps Dennis McGarry and others, that medium-chain uh, fatty acids do not use uh, CQT1 to transport, uh, for transport into mitochondria. And in fact, if you do this study using a high-fat diet that's made up primarily of medium-chain fatty acids, you don't see a response to the drug, which tells us that, in fact, that the mechanism by which this drug is acting is through its effect on CPT1. And we did a preloading study where if you give a preload to the rats, uh, an MCT preload, um, where you see increased ketone bodies in the blood, which is what you expect since it bypasses this rate-limiting step and produces, uh, through beta-oxidation, uh, partial beta-oxidation ketone bodies, um, you see that, this, uh, that the MCT inhibits the response to uh, the, the, this methylpalmoxorate, whereas a long-chain fat preload has little or no effects, statistically no effect. Now, the idea that obesity is associated with a decrease in fat oxidation isn't particularly new. In fact, it's been shown in humans. This is work from Astrup's laboratory. Let me go back. Uh, here, where he had what he calls post-obese women. These are women who had been obese and they dieted them down. And he gave them a fat meal, high-fat meal, and just looked at their energy expenditures and did indirect calorimetry afterwards. And what he finds is, is that in the post-obese they show a reduced oxidation of that fat meal. They show an increased oxidation of glucose with no net change in energy expenditure over this time period. Not only does, does, is the decreased fat oxidation associated with uh, proneness, if you will, since these people were previously obese, they presumably are still prone to obesity, um, but it also can be predicted. This is a study from the uh, from the group out in uh, Phoenix and Pima Indians, including uh, Eric Radisson, um, where they measured, uh, did indirect calorimetry, and they saw that the uh, over a three-year period, that weight gain was um, the highest in the people that showed the lowest uh, RQs. In other words, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. Showed the highest RQs. So in other words, a low RQ means you don't oxidize, you're not oxidizing as much fat as a high RQ uh, would suggest. And so the people with the lowest RQs were the ones that uh, gained the most weight over this period of time. And you also see it in rats, and many of you I'm sure know that if you take a bunch of outbred rats, even if you take some inbred mice for that matter, and you give them a high fat, high carbohydrate diet, 
Um, some of them will become obese, overeat and become obese, and some won't. There's a spread. Barry Levin's taken advantage of this. I'll talk about that in a minute. So that there are some that are called obesity-prone and some that are obesity-resistant in terms of this diet-induced obesity. And what we did is we took a bunch of outbred basic rats and um, did a very crude measure of whole body fatty acid oxidation by simply putting by gavage into their stomach a little bit of oil and uh, polycoast carbohydrate and we sort of spiked the oil with uh, C14 labeled palmitate and then just put them in a chamber and trapped the CO2 that they expired over a period of time and counted it. And the more, that, the more of the CO2 that you collect, the more of the fatty acid they're oxidizing. And then we fed them a high-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. And what we saw was um, over the next, uh, what's this, four weeks, uh, the animals that oxidized the most fatty acid gained the least. And the correlation's about 0.6, which means that by this very crude measure of fatty acid oxidation, we're accounting for a little more than a third of the variance in weight gain on a high-fat diet. Compare that to, once you get away from the single gene mutations, compare that to the relationship between weight gain, BMI, or body weight, and one of the best signals, which is this FTO variant. And that accounts for less than 1% of the variance. This impresses me. I don't know about you. So in other words, the capacity to oxidize fatty acids is predictive of obesity, or at least of weight gain. We looked at other signal, other sort of markers for this propensity for obesity. This is another one where we simply um, give a, a little gastric load of, uh, in the rats again, to, of uh, uh, corn oil, as it was, and then uh, two hours later, take a blood sample. Two hours later, take another blood sample and look at the change in plasma triglycerides. And what we see with this measure is that the animals that show the uh, largest change in triglycerides gain the least amount of weight. Weight. This is over two weeks or four weeks. We've done it several times and seen the same kind of result. In this case, we're accounting for about half the variance in subsequent weight gain. Again, these animals have never been on a high-fat diet. We do the, the, the blood test before they're given a high-fat diet, and then we give them a high-fat diet. If we do that in another group of animals, Again, never been on a high-fat diet, and take the top and bottom third, say the animals from up here and the animals from down here in terms of the change in triglycerides, and then isolate their hepatocytes and see what they do with fatty acids in a dish, what we find is, is the ones that we would predict would be obesity-prone, in other words, the ones up in this range here, have about half the... Uh, their hepatocytes are oxidizing about half the amount of fatty acid or half the rate as the ones that we would predict are uh, obesity resistant. Um, I mentioned Barry Levin's uh, DIO prone and resistant animals before and we've looked at those as well. So these are animals, for those who aren't aware of this, is he's taken these outbred animals like we've used and identifies the ones that are obesity prone resistance. He, he puts them on high fat, high carbohydrate diets. By the way, I keep saying high fat, high carbohydrate because if you give these rats a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, they don't overeat and become obese. 
um, just like they've done if you give them the lab chow, which is low fat, high carbohydrate. You have to put the two together to really see the effect of uh, diet-induced obesity. And then he bred, you get back to Barry, he bred these prone and resistant rats over many generations. So you get two substrains, one that is prone and one that is resistant to diet-induced obesity. When we look at them, again, with our crude measure of uh, fatty acid oxidation, again, in these animals, in the um, DIO animals, which are the prone animals, using his nomenclature, um, they show less fatty acid oxidation than the diet-induced diet, diet obesity-resistant animals, the DR animals. If you look at their blood ketone body levels, under fed conditions, there's no statistical difference. Under fasted conditions, uh, as you would expect, ketone body levels go up in both groups of animals, but only about half as much in the uh, diet-induced uh, diet, diet prone animals, in the animals that are prone to obesity. Uh, and this is reflective of you know what the liver is basically doing with fatty acids. I, I don't know why more people don't measure ketone bodies. That's my rant for the moment. It's very, it's probably more informative than any other blood measure, fuel measure you could take because there's really very little in the way of alternative explanations other than the liver is making ketone bodies, other than the liver's got an increased fatty acid oxidation. Other parts of the body don't make very many ketone bodies. And so and there's very little in the way of uh, fluxes to worry about. So it, this is very indicative of a suppressed uh, fatty acid oxidation liver. Now again, all of these animals are on a, when we do these studies, are on a low-fat diet. They're not obese yet. This is beforehand. And this just shows that fatty acid circulating aren't significantly different. So it's the substrate for this. Can't, differences in substrate can't account for that. We also did a little bit of um, uh, gene expression work. We took a bunch of, uh, uh, looked at the expression of a bunch of proteins that uh, are involved in fat metabolism. We did it in muscle and liver. We didn't really see anything in liver. This, and we did it in two ways. I'll talk about it in a second. Um, we looked at, among other things, we looked at uh, CD36. It transports fatty acids from uh, extracellular to intracellular to cytoplasm. We looked again at CPT1, and we looked at acyl-CoA dehydrogenase long chain, which is the first committed step in beta oxidation. And we did this in animals who, again, in these, these leaven rats who had never been on a high-fat diet, and then we looked at another batch of animals who we put on a high-fat, high-carbohydrate diet for about a month. So the ones that were on chow, what we saw was, um, just showing you the ones that, except for the LPL, which didn't show, the lipoprotein <coughs> lipase, which didn't show any effects. And this is just liver. As I said, muscle didn't turn up anything. Um, we saw a decreased expression in the DIO, the prone, obesity-prone animals, uh, for CD36 and for SO-CoA dehydrogenase. This is before they're obese, before they ever saw a high-fat diet. Um, once you put them on a high-fat diet and they become obese, um, gain weight, that is the DIO rats do, you see, uh, um, you still see a suppressed or decreased expression for CD36 and for um, AC-ADL. Um, 
and then now you see it for carnitine palmitoid transferase 1. 1A is the isoform in liver. So putting on a high-fat diet, this presumed deficit, if you will, or suggested deficit persists, and now you've added insult to injury in a way, because CPT1 seems to be a very limiting step for fatty acid oxidation in the liver. So if you controlled for the presumably increased adiposity of the DIOs of the high-fat diet, did it still show the reduction in CPT1? Um, don't know that. Because they're, they're obese, but the DR rats aren't. So we don't know. I'm just wondering the degree to which the high-fat diet, per se, independent of the adiposity increase, right. is don't sufficient know. to drive this. Don't know. Um, thinking because we have, there's another study, I'm not going to show you the data, where we fed these animals, um, actually that was an outbred animal. So it may make a difference, but if you make, if you give them a high-fat, high-carbohydrate diet, you can give them a dose of phenofibrate, which you put in the diet, which is, which increases fatty acid oxidation. It's a PPR alpha agonist um, activator, and uh, and you can give a dose that has no effect on the resistant animals, but does reduce the intake and body weight of the prone animal. And that's associated not only with an increase in whole body fatty acid oxidation, but an increased expression of CPT1. I don't know if that even approaches an answer, but that's the only other thing I can think of. So um, this is the dose-response figure I showed you earlier. And so a lot of this, these data, plus a lot of other data that we've had, would suggest that, fatty, that change in fatty acid oxidation in liver may be, and it could be somewhere else, but in liver um, is providing a signal for controlled food intake. And if you believe that, you'd be wrong. And the reason you wouldn't be wrong is because if you look at the dose effects of this methylpalmoxorate on fatty acid oxidation in liver or in ketone body, plasma ketones, which is sort of a proxy for that, what you find is, is that the lowest dose, the one milligram per kilogram dose, which has no effect on food intake, is just as good as the highest dose in reducing plasma ketones, and these are liver slices, reducing fatty acid oxidation in liver slices. So um, if the inhibition of fatty acid oxidation was a signal, then you, wouldn't, you would expect the one milligram dose to be as good as the 10 milligram dose, but the one milligram dose has no effect. Um, this shows the, the difference in the, in the two doses with respect to muscle fatty acid oxidation. In fact, the, this, is ba this, this has been shown, was shown by Dennis McGarry a long time ago, that the isoform in the muscle is more sensitive, or less sensitive, I should say, to the drug than, it is, than the isoform in the liver. In fact, it was on that basis we did, this, did these experiments. Um, however, if you look at one other thing that we looked at, um, and there's a longer story here, but it's a complicated one, so I'll skip it for now about why this happens. Um, if you look at liver energy status, and this gets me into the next part of the talk, and by this, um, I mean we've looked at liver ATP and other indices in liver, this is a freeze clamp liver, uh, other indices of what we call liver energy status, um, ATP ATP ratio and phosphorylation potential. Um, what you see is, is that 
um, there is a dose difference, so that the highest dose produces a much more reliable and a bigger change in liver energy status uh, than does the low dose of the MP, which uh, doesn't produce a change in food intake. So you can explain these dose, of, essentially you can explain this dose, of, dose response effect with respect to what this drug is doing to liver energy status uh, much better than you can by with respect to what it's doing to the fatty acid oxidation. Now, this idea that changes in liver energy status uh, provide a signal for control of food intake is another line of research that um, we had pursued uh, as well as others had pursued. And I'm calling it the energostatic control of food intake because I can't think of anything better to call it. Um, and again, and this gets to this part of the uh, then a miracle happens uh, that you need to work on part of the talk, which is a chat, you know, what, what, is there a change in ATP? Is it in the liver uh, that produces, that can, that can modify food intake? Uh, the first uh, direct studies on this uh, were done uh, using a fructose analog called 25, we call it 25AM, it's 